Hello and welcome to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio today. I'm Darren Hefty. And I'm Brian Hefty. Thanks for listening. Today on the show, we're going to talk a little about Goss's wilt in corn and other bacterial diseases as well. It's a little different than those fungal diseases we've been talking about a lot here over the winter, including tar spot and gray leaf spot, southern rust. All those are fungal diseases, whereas Goss's wilt is a bacterial disease. So you can't just go spray a fungicide and take care of this problem. What are you going to do? <laughs> One of the reasons why we're talking about this today is because of the unbelievable amount of seed switches there have been this spring. I shouldn't even say unbelievable. There have been a tr- tremendous amount of seed switches once again. Just seems like it's more than normal this year because of all the seed germination failures around the United States. Anyway, the reason why this gets to be such a big deal when it comes to Goss's wilt is if you had Goss's wilt over the past few years, you probably last fall talked to your seed provider and said, hey, I got a Goss's wilt tissue. And that seed provider said, you know what? We have just the hybrids you need. I'm sure every seed dealer said exactly that. So you bought these hybrids and you think, great, I'm all set. And then spring comes around, and here's what's going to happen if it hasn't happened to you already. Seed dealer calls you up and says, you know, those numbers that you bought, yeah, sorry. They didn't make germ or, you know, we had had this issue or that issue. But but I got these other really good numbers that I know you're going to like. They might even be better than the other ones we talked about. I I always get charged out of that one. Anyway, the, the reason why I want you thinking about this today is because It's hard to remember when you're busy, you're getting ready to plant or whatever in the spring, spray, just making plans, and you forget how bad the Goss's wilt was over the last few years. And if you forget to mention that to the seed dealer, please do so because seed variety selection is the number one thing when it comes to getting past your Goss's wilt issues. It's varietal tolerance. And then it's basically everything else when it comes to preventing Goss's wilt. So make sure you're asking that question. If you need some type of bacterial disease tolerance or resistance in your hybrid, when those seed switches, when the seed dealer calls you about those seed switches, when they come, just say, hey, wait a second here. I've got to have something great for Goss's wilt. Don't forget. All right. So we'll talk about Goss's wilt throughout the show today. Right now, let's get to the Ag PhD mailbag. All right, first question comes in from Royce over in Pennsylvania. Royce says, hey, guys, big fan of your show and the important discussions that you're having. My question is about soil pH, and I get that sodium, potassium, and magnesium raise soil pH, but I don't understand why. It doesn't seem to be that replacing two sodium ions with a calcium ion would change the level of hydrogen and hydroxide in the soil. Can you talk a little chemistry about what is happening? Look at that, Brian. A request for chemistry talk. I love it. He may have requested that. I don't know if he actually wants the full chemistry, though, and I feel pretty confident that our listening audience does not want the full chemistry behind this. So when this question came in, because this is one of the things that Neil Kinsey's talked about a lot over the years. So we, we've, this question came in a little while back, but we immediately sent it on to Neil and then sent Neil's response uh, to, let's see, what was his Rice. name again? I'm sorry, Rice. Uh, sent it on to Royce. So Royce has had this information already. 
Um, I'll just, I'll bore you with all, I won't bore you with all the details, but I will tell you, here's what, in, in very quick summary fashion, what Neil said. He said, first of all, we're not driving calcium uh, well, basically, adding calcium is not driving off the sodium, and this the, this gets to be one of the misconceptions out there that, oh, we're going to put some calcium out, it's going to drive off the sodium, or we're going to put calcium out, it's going to drive off the magnesium, or we're going to put magnesium out, going to drive off the calcium. He's like, no, no, no. Um, all those are cations. So you're not going to drive a cation off with another cation. The only way that you're going to drive it off is when you put something out there like sulfur and it becomes sulfate. Now you form sodium sulfate or calcium sulfate or magnesium sulfate or something that becomes a salt in effect and is leachable. And now we can flush that away. So if you actually want to drive, say, sodium out of the soil or magnesium, that's why you've got to put some sulfur out there. So that's the first thing. In terms of the raising the pH, so for years, Neil has said, just as an example, if you look at sodium, it will increase soil pH roughly 4 to 1 compared to calcium. So basically, he's got, a, he's got some formulas here and math and everything else and talking about the atomic weight of calcium is 20, the atomic weight of sodium is 11, and but the thing is calcium has double plus charge, single, sodium has a single plus charge, uh, so basically it requires two sodium ions to replace one calcium ion. He starts doing the math and comes up with it's basically 3.64. So the sodium increases the pH 3.64 times compared to calcium. Uh, but anyway, yeah, in, in very quick summary, I'm just trying to say here, it's not driving anything off when you're putting that calcium out. It's going to be there, and so is that other thing. And so this is part of the reason why that, that pH is going to continue to rise. And also, I, I would tell you, where do you have a lot of these issues? You've got them when the soil pH is already high. you got a whole bunch of calcium and magnesium and sodium. Well, you know the pH is already high. Adding anything else is going to make it even worse. So this is why we're talking all the time here on the show about, first, let's improve the drainage. Second, let's take a look at how we can turn any of those excesses into a salt, typically with sulfur, but how can we turn them into a salt to make them leachable? And now we can start flushing stuff out of the ground. The other thing along with that is we want to get soil overall in balance. Get your nutrients in balance. And then a lot of times this soil pH thing starts to regulate. So Anyway, that's why we're looking at these ratios, calcium and magnesium and sodium, and talking base saturation percentages. That, hey, if you can get into this kind of range, that's that's usually where you want to be. You start doing those things, and granted, it may take quite a bit of time. But eventually, that pH will start to neutralize, and hopefully it's going to come way back down, and then your crop will also go up in yield. Well, we're going to talk Goss's Wilton Corn right after this. There are a lot of choices for closing systems in the market. 360 Wave has been topping them all in side-by-sides. More plants and ears, more bushels. They're in stock and ready to ship from 360. Most closing systems attempt to close from the top down. Wave closes from the bottom up, rolling moist soil over the seed, plus puts starter fertilizer in the sweet spot. There is still time to upgrade your closing system with 360 Wave. Learn more at 360yieldcenter.com. 
This season, get medieval on Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia fungicide from Valent USA. Here to shield your sugar beets from the treachery of Rhizoctonia, Excalia delivers excellent staying power, keeping your sugar beets from being conquered. Stay one step ahead of Rhizoctonia with the powerful protection of Excalia. Ask your retailer or visit valent.com slash Excalia to learn more. Always read and follow legal instructions. It takes balance to be successful in farming because what you get out of it depends on what you put in. And Corteva AgriScience gets that. Introducing Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer, a biological product that naturally captures nitrogen from the air. It's a sustainable way to add balance to your traditional nitrogen methods and maximize your yield potential. Embrace a balanced approach to nitrogen management this season by visiting Corteva.us. What does it really mean to provide the best crop nutrition? With AgroLiquid, you're getting a one-of-a-kind approach, one that caters to your specific agronomic needs. You're getting a crop nutrition plan that maximizes your fertilizer applications from every drop, all while accounting for your management practices and the products you're already using. But it's not just a product. It's peace of mind, knowing we've thought of everything. That's the AgroLiquid way. Apply less, expect more. Find a retailer at agroliquid.com. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio today. And you know, according to crop insurance, we could plant corn today. We're we're in that window. Now our fields would say otherwise. The ground isn't quite fit yet. That's the other thing. So everybody says, you know, how is it farming with your brother? He's probably out there the uh the hour that crop insurance allows him to be. I'm like, well, he would be. If the ground was fit, which well, we're also, it's not. Yeah, but we're also raising a bunch of silage corn, and there's no rush in planting silage corn anyway. So we only have two corn that are going to be full grain fields. So I was just talking to uh, one of our people here a little bit ago, and I'm like, you know, I'm, I, I, I hate to even say this, but I'm not in any huge rush this week. I mean, next week's a little different story. But uh, we'll try to plant our beans in April and then get to the silage corn after the beans. We want the grain corn in as early as we can possibly get it in, though. So, yeah, as soon as the grounds fit here, which I would guess it'll be sometime next week, then we'll get going. All right. Now, you mentioned the silage. And sometimes, well, actually fairly often, the the field's very close to our neighbor's dairy are going to end up being corn on corn. And then we start thinking about some of the different diseases we could get. One of them being Goss's wilts. That's our topic of today's discussion. we got Tamara Jackson-Zims on with the University of Nebraska to talk a little about that. Tamara, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. All right. I know all the discussion is about tar spot. I think all winter, everybody probably <laughs> drove you nuts asking questions about tar spot. So how about we go back to something that is still a concern for growers and honestly in an area that's kind of spreading, goss as wilt. And, and even in Nebraska, what's interesting, you can tell me if this is reality, but I have a lot of farmers say, oh man, there are parts in Nebraska that Goss's wilt is a little different than others, that if your rating is good, that's not good enough out here. Uh, <laughs> do, you, do you find that to be the case? Well, I, I think that could be the case, you know, and I'm glad you're talking about things other than tar spot, just to remind <laughs> people that if you've had a problem with some of these diseases in the past, you're likely to see them again because they're still out, out there. And so Goss's wilt is one that it's not going to go away. And 
especially if you have a surprise hail or windstorm and you may have a, a bad surprise, an outcome after that when you have Goss's wilt flare up. All right. Talk to us a little bit about this one because we, we don't have the option of spraying fungicides for Goss's wilt since it's bacterial. Uh, so growers are really looking at Find me the best hybrids. I, I just got to pick the best ones out there. What are some other things that, that growers could do to, to help themselves out? That, that's exactly right. And so part of it is identifying it correctly. And so if you haven't seen it in a while, it might look like some of the other things that we've been seeing, like uh, northern corn leaf blight with those big lesions. And so make sure you know that it's Goss's wilt, for one, because you, you could potentially control northern corn leaf blight with a fungicide. Hey, let me, so let me ask you this. Hybrid. Let, let yeah. me ask this question, speaking about ID. So I, I see something out in my field, and I think, man, that looks like Goss's wilt. Uh, can I just take it into the university and, and get an identification done, or what kind of process would a grower go through if they really can't tell? That's exactly right. Most of our land-grant universities around the country have a plant diagnostic lab, and they're happy to show you or help you identify what disease you've got, whether it's Goss's wilt or something else. So I highly recommend that. And if you've never done that, reach out to your local county extension folks, and they can help you uh, learn how to do that. Yep. Great tip. Great tip. Okay. So identification, that's certainly a big thing to, to figure out what you really have. So you know how to address it going forward. Um, what are some other things when it comes to this disease that, that make it a little tricky? <clears throat> well, like we talked about, it survives in the residue for sure. And it can survive for a very long time. And, you know, we're used to seeing those big lesions, you know, later in the season after, after tasseling, but this pathogen can infect small plants early in the season, especially if they're damaged. And it can actually be systemic and kill plants early in the season. And that's something we've seen more of maybe out in western Nebraska and the western Great Plains region, even out in Colorado and South Dakota and whatnot, but Kansas. But that's that's something else that they may not be aware of. But you're absolutely right. Hybrid selection is the number one way to manage this. But since it does overwinter in the residue, crop rotation can help. But you're probably not going to eliminate the risk for Goss's wilt or some of the other diseases with crop rotation. So hybrid selection is almost always the first thing I would think about. All right. Now, crop rotation helps for a year without a susceptible host. But we've got growers that have said, you know, I haven't seen it in four or five years out there. Is it gone forever? Uh, what What do you <laughs> say about that? Is there a certain time that it you just don't have to worry as much? Or, or what if you haven't seen it for a few years? I, I don't think that we can let our guard down. We've had some, like I said earlier, bad surprises and outbreaks of Goss's wilt, uh, say in south central Nebraska where we had hail. And so uh, the hybrid can, you know, even a good resistant hybrid may still develop a little bit of disease, but it'll slow down spread and development of that and keep it less severe. So a pretty critical decision. Yeah, it sure is. And and it's not the only bacterial disease that we fight. I think about bacterial leaf streak as well. Are, are there others that I'm missing? And then how are they different than Gosses? Because Gosses certainly gets a lot of attention and from what I could tell, causes more yield loss than the others. And I think that's right too. We don't have good data on 
you know, loss for bacterial leaf streak. It's just hard to work with. But that is a really widespread disease now. We've confirmed it in, I think, 75 of our 93 Nebraska counties alone. But it's it's been confirmed in, I think, up to about 10 states now. And so on susceptible hybrids, it can have a big, it can look really bad and have an impact on them, especially if you're rotating with something susceptible like some of our popcorn hybrids might be, and that might put you at higher risk. And so the scary thing is, is that bacterial leaf streak can also look like some other diseases, especially on certain hybrids. It can even look like gray leaf spot. So if people see streaking on the leaves, especially if they look yellow when they hold them up to the light, and if it develops early in the season, it's probably not gray leaf spot. It's probably bacterial leaf streak. Yeah, I agree with you on the gray leaf spot uh, misidentification because I have caught myself on that before. I'd be like, oh, wait, is it this or is it that? Because all the legions (laughs) don't look exactly like a textbook, Tamara. I mean, there's a little variation out there. (laughs) No, they don't. And, And that brings me back to get help identifying those. Uh, from your maybe from your local extension service and plant diagnostic clinic. We also have a lot of resources for free online through the Crop Protection Network and some of your local university extension services. All right. I won't ask you about tar spot, but I will ask you about crown rot <laughs> since we're talking. Mm. Uh, I know you're doing some work on crown rot. What What should growers look for out in fields? And if you had crown rot last year or the year before, any idea of what we could do differently? I mean, eventually we're going to plant corn back in those fields. Yeah. Crown rot has a lot of mystery associated with it. And the first time you may notice crown rot, it might be in the fall when you see plants starting to die early before they, before they senesce. And so if you haven't been out before, I'd recommend digging those plants up and splitting them down through that root ball and looking to see if you see that black or dark brown decay or evidence of disease in the crown and the side root. That's sometimes the first thing you might, uh, first time you might uh, diagnose it, but the plant above ground can die really rapidly and turn a really sick gray color. Well, unfortunately, that was pretty widespread this past year across a lot of states, and so I'm really uh, pleased that we're able to pursue that and do some research on it as well as some of my colleagues at uh, Iowa State University, and we uh, we hope we can get answers. We have more questions right now, even some basic questions about which pathogens are causing this disease and which maybe practices, what are we doing that might be uh, making it worse? Yeah, and abso- so absolutely. we're starting there. Well, thank you for doing that work because we we aren't able to do that as farmers. So we're glad we have experts like you helping us out. Uh, Again, we're talking to Tamara Jackson-Zims here down at University of Nebraska. Tamara, thank you and good luck to you guys heading into the spring. Thank you all. Good luck, everyone. We're talking about Goss's Wilt on today's show and taking your calls and questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trifold Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com.
Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. Farmer Amaranth. Four counts of yield theft, resistance to groups two, four, nine. You ain't got nothing on me, man. We've been surveilling you. And now we've got Tough 5EC, a tank mix partner that'll make sure you and your gang of resistant weeds never see the daylight again. Crack down on repeat offenders. Add Tough 5EC to your post-emergence tank mix. Learn more at toughonweeds.com. Always read and follow label directions. Tough is a registered trademark of Belsham Crop Protection. Control the toughest weeds with overlapping residuals. Lock in the longest-lasting control for your soybean fields. A pre-emergence application of an Authority brand herbicide plus a post-application of Anthem Max herbicide establishes the overlapping residual control key to safeguarding your soybean seasons. This pairing is a heavy-duty economical strategy against Palmer Amaranth, Waterhemp, Kosha, and more. Visit your FMC retailer or lockin.ag.fmc.com today. Always read and follow all label directions. At Ag PhD, we're always looking for ways to support the ag industry. That's why at our free Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event, we're giving away more than 100 college scholarships. Plus, we'll head out into the field for hands-on agronomy sessions, including our comprehensive guide to crop scouting. This day may be geared towards younger farmers, but whether you're a college student or just want good agronomy info, this is one event you won't want to miss. Learn more and register for the Ag PhD Scouting and Scholarships event at agphd.com. Head over to your local CNB to get yourself a new John Deere planter or schedule inspections to make sure your equipment is as ready for spring as you are. Visit CNB Operations online at DeerEquipment.com. That's D E R Equipment.com. Morton buildings are made to last for generations. With superior materials, craftsmanship, and best in class warranty, we are committed to quality. To learn how we can help you expand your farm operation, visit MortonBuildings.com. Get more durability for less downtime with Soil Warrior Strip Tillage from Environmental Tillage Systems. Improve fertilizer efficiency and reduce passes and fuel usage. Now that's ROI. Learn more about ETS at SoilWarrior.com. Get your planter ready for spring with Germinator Closing Wheels from Farm Shop MFG. When you buy 12 rows or more, get free shipping or 20% off an end zone bin system. So call Farm Shop MFG today at 712-520-6051. You're listening to Ag PhD Radio, broadcasting from the Morton studio, and our phone lines are open today for your calls and agronomic questions at 844-44-AG-PHD. You can always email us, radio at agphd.com. Let's head over to Iowa. We were talking to Tamara Jackson-Zims at University of Nebraska, and she said, Costas, what was not just a Nebraska problem, it's uh, <laughs> across uh, at least 10 states, uh, and uh, we've got Ryan on new farms over in Iowa right now. How are you doing, Ryan? Good. All right. How how big a selection criteria do you make when you're looking at hybrids for Goss as well? Is it a top two or three factor for you, or where does it fit into your program? Yes, uh, number two at least, if not number one. Yeah, number especially, one. Especially wow. if you're doing corn. Especially if you're doing corn on corn. You know, I, I mentioned before, Brian and I are doing some corn on corn, and I know we definitely look at the Gosses score. And I, I would say this, in our search, we found the hybrids rated as average on Gosses 
might be enough most years now, and I couldn't have said that years ago. So I'm betting that scale has changed a little over time. What's what's your thought? Are you looking for it must be very good, or what what kind of wording or number scale do you look at? Uh, if it's going corn on corn, I really like it to be above average, uh, you know, like a three or four on the scale to uh, not have any problems. We had it a few years ago, and it was a 100-bushel uh, loss. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I, I know we have seen that on parts of our farm, too. I remember one particular field, we had a hybrid that was not the best on gosses, and there was some left in the planter boxes, and it just got planted out in a field that was corn for a number of years, and boy, did we see where that hybrid was and where we switched to the next one. Uh, what what do you do when you have a big gosses problem? Does that mean deep tillage for you? Does that mean two years of soybeans in that field, or or how do you address it if you do have a problem like that? So we just went, you know, one year soybeans uh, is all we've done and gone back to um, corn and just picked pick the right hybrids. We have goss every year here because uh, I have a goss trial. So I know I have it in uh, one farm uh, every year. So, Yeah, Tamara was saying, you know, if you have a hail event or something like that, that makes it a lot tougher to keep gosses out. When you're getting it every year, I'm guessing you're not getting hail every year or crop that's just torn up by wind. I'm guessing you got crop that looks pretty good and you still see this. Uh, I guess, what do you say? Are you watching for extreme weather events or you just know it's coming all the time? I uh, I know I have it uh, in certain fields and we just plan for it. Um, yeah, we, we do too, especially uh, certain fields where we've had that past history. It, it, it can absolutely pop up and and I guess that was something Tamara Jackson Zims was saying too that you can't can't sleep on it even if you haven't had it for just a little while it it could certainly pop up and it could pop up in a bad way. Hey Ryan, thank you so much. Really appreciate having you on and good luck to you as you get farming this year. Brian, we've we've had gosses on our farm, but I can't say we've had it very bad for a while, especially as it's become like Ryan was saying. It's it's. Uh, his number one or number two selection factor for hybrids is we got to have Goss's tolerance. We've been watching for that too, where we want decent hybrids here. And that's really helped us manage this problem. Yeah, it has. I mean, honestly, we only had one year that I can remember where Goss's wilt was much of an issue. I, I will say too, we plant a lot of different varieties. And if we haven't seen much gosses issue as much corn on corn as we plant. So like last year, we probably had, I don't know, 2,300 acres of corn. At least a thousand of that was continuous corn. We should be seeing this if our hybrids didn't have good tolerance. But I'll tell you this, I'm just a firm believer in if you have good drainage and you have really good fertility, not just the right amount of NP and K or lots of NP and K, but all the other stuff too, the sulfur, the boron, zinc, all those other micronutrients. If you've got all that stuff, now you're going to have a more tolerant crop, even if the natural tolerance to gases wilt isn't perfect. But yes, I, I, I think there are a lot of good varieties now. And five years ago, there weren't nearly as many. Anytime we have... I'll call it disasters out there. For the long term, it's actually a good thing because now everybody gets excited about it. 
And everybody, in terms of the research side, they really see, oh, hey, these varieties actually weren't too bad in our disaster year. Well, that's really kind of what I'm looking for. And especially now that they can inoculate for Goss's wilt, they can make it a disaster year every year in research. That's awesome. Whereas some of the new diseases that have come out, they don't have that yet. Like tar spot, as far as I know, they're not inoculating for tar spot in all these research fields. So we don't really know which varieties are the best on that yet. They'll get there, I'm sure, someday. But with Goss's wilt, oh yeah, we're definitely seeing that. And with a lot of these, what I would say, Western Corn Belt hybrids, they are getting tested for Goss's wilt. So I, I appreciate that as a farmer. Yeah, for sure. And and when we think about bacterial diseases, again, I just go back to my first point. We, we don't have that fungicide option, but some guys will say, well, I had less issue where I did use a fungicide. And I, I guess I just wanted to address that. In general, if we've got good plant health, we're able to fight things off. So I do think that's part of it. And certainly you think about yourself, just human health. If you get sick with something, you've got a cold or whatever, you're just much more likely to catch something else and it, it turning into pneumonia or turning into uh, some Something worse. So, with our plants, we do want to do everything we can to keep them healthy. I totally agree. The best thing you can do is pick the right hybrid and use crop rotation in your favor. And but but yeah, weed, insect, and disease control. I mean, you look at all the other diseases, like you said, but it's also the weeds and the insects. If your plant is under stress from anything, it's not going to do as well on Goss's will. So that anything certainly could be the environmental conditions, whether it's wind or drought or hail or any of that kind of stuff. But the other side of it is the things we can control, the bugs and the weeds. And a lot of times we say, well, we want to do it on our schedule rather than on the crop schedule. For example, I have a lot of people that go, you know what, I'm going to try to get by one shot early post in my corn and I'm going to kill all my weeds that way. You can absolutely do that, but I just want you to think about that decision. So the standard in, in at least here in the Midwestern United States, and our recommendation is always to use a pre-emerge herbicide and then follow with a post. You don't have to necessarily spend any more dollars. In fact, I can do it pretty cheap, but you're going to have to make another trip. And here's where I'm going with this. If you let some weeds start coming... And let's say you have rain that delays you even a few days. Now you have weeds that are absolutely impacting that corn crop. And you might say, well, I'm not losing a lot of yield. Maybe not yet. You're probably losing a little bit. But you have put that plant under more stress. And now it's more likely to get disease. Period. So, And it's the same thing with bugs. A lot of people go, well, I don't know if there are really enough bugs there to spray, and is it really that big a deal, and do I need to use a, an insecticide for rootworm and wireworm and all this? I don't, there's seed treatment on there. We're, we're, we're going to call it good. And with all these things, it's fine if your yield goals are not very high, but when you're saying, boy, I got a tremendous commodity price, I'm going for the best yield I've ever had on my farm, whatever that is, whether that's 180 280, 380, whatever it is, if you're going for the best yield and you're trying to have that crop be as stress-free as possible, then we just want you to think about all these other things. And sure, they don't always pay off, but 
when you have a year when your crop gets under other stresses or let's say for whatever reason gosses will happen to be bad that year, the more you have done to protect that crop, to help it be super healthy, the better chance you have to survive that. So I guess that's that's the way we prefer to farm. That's what we're trying to talk about all the time. But as we always say, hey, if you don't believe anything we're telling you here, at least please try some stuff, do some side-by-side things. And then over time, I think you're going to find out, boy, a healthier crop it's got a lot better chance to survive all these tough diseases. Goss's Wilt's been our topic today, but we'll dive into your questions coming up right after this. Get what you spray for. Results. Get the lasting control more corn growers trust with Anthem Max Herbicide from FMC. Apply pre-plant, pre-emergence, or early post-emergence to control tough broadleaf weeds and grasses before they cost you. For superior control with a low use rate and long residual, make the easy, high-performing choice. Visit anthemmax.ag.fmc.com to get results. Always read and follow all label directions. Did you know soybean diseases like white mold and sudden death syndrome can survive in your soil even after rotating crops? Prevention of these diseases is a constant battle and yield loss from an infection can be devastating. The right management plan makes all the difference. Keep your beans safe with Heads Up Seed Treatment. Heads Up guards your seed from both white mold and SDS. Stay protected and profitable by asking your seed dealer for Heads Up. Learn more at headsupst.com. My mom's got a new case I extractor and it can do it all. Bail hay all day. See in the dark with its powerful LED lights. Hook up all the implements. Shift like a race car? Steer with ease. And it can also cool my juice box. Yeah, her case IH tractor can do everything she needs it to. Looking for a tractor that can do it all? Check out caseih.com. You understand there are ways to boost your yield, but can you do it while reducing your inputs? With Plant Insights, powered by Prospera, you can. With center pivot mounted cameras to monitor crop health, Plant Insights captures thousands of leaf level images with each pivot rotation. Growers receive reports to mitigate issues like pests, weeds, emergence, disease, and more. Put inputs where they matter most. Contact your local Valley dealer today or visit agtechonthefarm.com. When we told growers that New Bear Premium Trivolt Herbicide for corn delivers visibly clean fields for up to eight weeks, they were a bit skeptical. Um, we'll see how it works. So we decided to prove it. We set up cameras in multiple cornfields, treated them with Trivolt, and filmed for 24 hours a day. For eight weeks, we saw a variety of weather conditions, and Trivolt worked. See for yourself at trivoltinaction.com. Trivolt is a restricted-use pesticide. Consult your state pesticide regulator for specific restrictions. Read and follow pesticide label directions. The value of your farm building is in its ability to protect what's stored inside. From the smallest fastener to the trusses overhead, Morton leaves absolutely no detail to chance. It's how we ensure that your building stands the test of time. From concept to completion, we take pride in providing a high-quality building to last for generations. To get started on your next project, please visit mortonbuildings.com.
You're listening to Ag PhD Radio. Our phone lines are open, 844-44-AG-PHD. If you have an agronomic question, you can also send us an email, radio at agphd.com. But right now we're going to dive back into the Ag PhD mailbag. Uh, I got an email up here, and I will get rolling on this. This is from Sam down in Kansas. He said, all right, guys, I live and farm in an area where we have varying and mostly limited amounts of topsoil. So I'm always studying ways to build organic matter, soil fertility, and so forth. But today I'm hiding in the shop. There's 35 to 40 mile an hour winds with 50 mile an hour gusts. And I looked outside and I saw a neighbor with a big four wheel drive pulling a 40 plus foot tillage tool through the field. And as you can imagine, dirt is blown away. And I just got thinking. Are there any good ways for me to catch his topsoil? He really spends a lot of money on fertility. That topsoil must be worth a fortune. Sarcasm, of course. Nothing against tillage. Just seems to be silly to send in that much downwind. Uh, What do you feel like if we're putting out cover crops, if we're uh, leaving things growing in the field, are we going to catch a good chunk of his dirt or is it all going to be up in the atmosphere? Most of it's going to blow away, but... I mean, would you catch some? Sure. So, I mean, anytime you have anything growing out in a field, you have the opportunity to, or, or not even grow. I mean, just anything above the ground, even if it's dead, you have the chance to catch something, whether that's snow, dirt, whatever. So, yeah, I mean, I think the percentage is going to be small. I don't think it's going to be a real big deal. Uh, and I know he's just kind of joking around, but I, um, uh, legitimately yeah you could maybe catch a little bit of stuff i i guess it, it's it's really hard we were talking with a group this morning about you can't ever have perfect conditions all year to farm you're going to be struggling against something whether it's the wind the sun the rain the heat the cold i, I mean bugs weeds insects i mean it just feels like a lot of times mother nature is constantly fighting you don't worry about that i mean that's the way it goes you just have to try to make wise decisions as best you can and yeah maybe tilling in a 40 mile an hour wind isn't probably the best thing to do but i mean sometimes we just do a lot of things and don't even really think about it so if at least this conversation has sparked something in you to say yeah you know never really thought about it, but if that dust is blowing, um, there are a lot of nutrients in there. There's good soil organic matter. I mean, your most valuable soil is right on the top of that soil. So I want to keep it if I can. That's why reducing erosion does get to be such a big deal. But again, you know, sometimes you have to do things that you don't really like just to get the crop in this year. Hey, along these lines, Robert had sent in a comment. We were talking about nurse crops, and he said, uh, in my area, cotton growers always used a terminated wheat stand to try to protect their cotton crop coming up. Corn stubble can make a, a great shepherd in a corn cotton rotation. The corn middles are, are strip-tilled in the winter, and a chopper is used to take down the stalks at the end of June. A great cotton crop is made with much less irrigation here in Texas, and uh, it's much better than using a wheat cover crop. Hey, uh, thanks, Robert. Really appreciate the comments that, yeah, a lot of times we use a nurse crop to try to help that next crop get up and avoid, well, like today, like what we are talking about here with Sam's question about wind 
blowing and soil blowing or sand blowing, uh, it, it can clip off a new crop trying to make it up. So that's that's a good thing to keep in mind. All right, uh, I got this one from Noah, and he said, speaking about cover crop, he goes, hey, guys, love your show. I'm farming with my dad over here in northern Ohio, and we are kicking around how to terminate clover this spring ahead of our corn planting. Traditionally, the wet areas of our fields along the woods, uh, we're trying to build up soil, and we've used this field for rye seed last year and then frost-seeded some some clover in there in early spring 22. Normally, we terminate covers with chemistry, but we've heard mention of having more benefit plowing the clover under. Uh, What are your thoughts? Is there a benefit to plowing under a living clover, or should we just terminate it with chemistry? I terminate it with chemistry. So the, the thing is, when you plow it under, you are going to have fast availability of nutrients. When you terminate it with chemistry, you are going to have slow availability of the same nutrients. So all you're doing is speeding up the process. And what I always tell people is, then why don't you just put on more fertilizer up front? And then when this residue eventually breaks down naturally, you'll have more coming available later on. So if it's me, that's what I would do. Yeah, I agree. I, I like to know for sure I'm going to wipe out that cover so my crop is going to do the best it possibly can. And I personally don't like doing deep tillage, but if if you're going to be doing tillage anyway, you certainly could use that as, as part of all of the solution. Uh, yeah, but, I don't have any issue with deep tillage every once in a while. Let's say it's every ten, once every 10 years, once every 20 years, whatever. It, it's not that big a deal. I, I mean, you're not going to hurt anything by doing that usually if it's that seldom but you're right in that hey even deep tillage may not complete completely kill the clover off whereas roundup would now granted if it was roundup ready alfalfa and you have to go with let's say dicamba or 2,4-D or something you probably won't completely kill it that way either but he said clover so i'm assuming we can just go spray roundup and that that glyphosate will get all the way down into the perennial roots and we should be in good shape Okay, here's here's another thing to think about there, Brian. So they're in northern Ohio, and let's just say we have that spring where it's going to be cold for the next month, and you just want to get stuff done, and you know Roundup doesn't work very well when it's cold. It might be a time where you say, you know what, I'm going to do the deep tillage, and I've got a couple of purposes here. Maybe I want to... Uh, kill the clover off, but I also have some other reason for doing it. Maybe it's been in clover for a while and I've got uh, pocket gopher mounds all over in there that I just want to level off. Uh, Go for it. That would be a great opportunity to do it if you say, I don't think the Roundup's going to work anyway, or if I am going to make it work, I'm going to have to use a double rate or something. I'm going to have to go up to the full labeled rate to to get it to control it. That, That might be a place where you'd say, uh, I better do the tillage, but if you're if you get some warm weather, even for just a week, you can usually whip it out with Roundup. Hey, since we're talking about deep tillage just a little bit now, and then right before this, we had the question about the erosion. I would just say there's no rule that you have to deep till an entire field. Why don't you do strips? Why don't you do every three once every three passes, or once every five passes, or once every ten passes, and then the next year? You just move over one and do a little more, whatever. So, I mean, there there are ways to make things work if you really want them to work. 
but I'm not that worried about a northern Ohio that's going to be super cold, but you never know. Our rule with Roundup is if the nighttime temperature is below 50 degrees, if you still insist on spraying, please increase your rate by 50% as long as that is still a labeled rate. And the reason why is because Roundup is a systemic herbicide. It's going to move through the plant, it's going to land on the leaves, then it moves to the growing point, or in the case of clover, the growing points. Well, when it reaches each and every growing point, if it does not have a lethal dose, um, you don't kill the plant. In fact, you may make the plant more tolerant in the future to Roundup and potentially resistant in the future. So that's not really a good thing. You overcome that by increasing the rate. It's pretty simple. It's just like when you see a lot of these weeds, like I think about lamb's quarters in particular and, and water hemp quite often too, where you spray and then all of a sudden at the bottom of the plant, there it looks like there's some shoots that just take off there. It looks like it's killed the top of the plant, but not the bottom. That almost certainly tells you that you did not spray a high enough rate. So uh, yeah, it's, it's a big deal with Roundup. You have to have the temperature because then it moves the, the herbicide more quickly through that plant. If it's cold, you got to increase the rate or just wait to spray. All right, great question. Good luck on uh, controlling that clover. Got a little feedback here from Seth. He said, hey, guys, love the Ag PhD videos. Concise, great information for anybody looking for information about farming. Hey, thanks, Seth. We really appreciate that. Thanks for your support. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more of your questions after this. When it comes to cereal disease protection, Prosaro Pro 400 SC fungicide from Bayer makes all the difference. With three effective active ingredients for overlapping control of foliar and head diseases and a flexible application window for head scab, it's formulated to lower dawn, protect yield potential, and promote superior grain quality. Prosaro Pro, the future of plant health starts here. Visit prosaropro.com to learn more. Always read and follow grain marketing and all other stewardship practices and pesticide label directions. The hardworking independent spirit of rural America can often be isolating. It's not often discussed, but mental health issues are real. Now's the time to lead by example, talk openly and show that a strong mind is just as important as a strong body. FMC is proud to be working toward ending the misconceptions around mental health through awareness, guidance and action. Together, we can uproot the stigma. You won't want to miss this year's Ag PhD Field Day with guided tours of our extensive research plots, world premieres of the latest ag technologies, the highest yielding farmers on the planet, and more equipment running than ever before. The Ag PhD Field Day just keeps getting bigger and better. We'll also have great family entertainment, including a kids area, music, fantastic guest speakers, and food and drink available all throughout the day. But the best part is everything's free. Go to agphd.com to learn more for the Ag PhD Field Day, Thursday, July 27th. Win the war against weeds in your soybean fields with fierce herbicides from Valent USA. With three different formulations and multiple modes of action, you're sure to find the right fierce product to protect your operation from tough weeds like Palmer Amaranth and Waterhemp. Give your soybeans a strong, clean start with up to eight weeks of residual control with the powerful pre-emergence protection of fierce herbicide. Ask your local retailer or visit valent.com fierce to find the right fierce formulation for you. Always read and follow label instructions. 
At Corteva AgriScience, we want to keep farms healthy and productive, today and tomorrow. That's why we're investing in a robust pipeline of naturally derived biologicals. Meet Nutrition and Nutrient Efficiency Optimizer. It's a sustainable nitrogen fixation product that facilitates crop growth and optimizes yield potential. With the fluctuation in fertilizer prices, Nutrition N is a reliable solution. It can be used alongside your traditional nitrogen program to enhance your ROI this year. For more information, visit Corteva.us. This is Mike. Hey. He's getting a quick haircut at the local barber school. It's only five bucks. How bad can it? Oh! Yikes. Don't be like Mike when it comes to weed control. Get the job done right the first time and plan ahead with Status Herbicide. It delivers elite corn safety and reliable performance, so you don't have to deal with more problems than you bargained for. No, 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 no. Status Herbicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Back, you're listening to Ag PhD Radio. We're broadcasting from the Morton studio, and we have reached the Ag PhD mailbag time, taking your calls and questions throughout the rest of the show. Uh, it's 844-44-AG-PHD. Had a little feedback here from Rosie. said, hey, you guys are talking about white heath aster as a weed of the week. I was just going to tell you that I've got a yard right now over an acre full of these things. They've been growing for six years and the honeybees love them, and it's been said that burning the root and smelling it can wake up an unconscious person. Hey, thanks, Rosie. Yeah, we're we're definitely not trying to wipe heath as wipe white heath aster off the face of the earth. We just don't want it out in our crop production fields competing with our crops. But absolutely, non-crop areas, uh, this could be a, a definite thing for pollinators to feed on so good to, good to hear that thanks for the feedback rosie all right get evan on right now with the question for us how you doing evan good good got a question about uh some i was digging up the moles or gophers or whatever make them little mounds in the hay field sure and sure oh but, man i shouldn't but, have mentioned that i shouldn't have mentioned that evan <laughs> now we got to talk about how to <laughs> fix that well what are you doing what are you doing to try and stop them I've used some just poison in the past, and I dig up, try to find the tunnel and dump it in there and cover it up, and seemed to work. So, but then I was thinking, is it possible for you know alfalfa grass, whatever, to take that stuff up into the roots, pass it along, harm a harm an animal like a horse, cow, whatever you're feeding with it. Yeah, that's, or does it not work like that? That's a good question. I, I, I don't know that I've ever seen any studies that have shown that. Brian, have you have you seen any data no, on that? I don't know. I, I, I mean, the odds of that happening, I would think, would be incredibly slim. But nevertheless, I just don't like handling poison, if I, if, if I can help <laughs> it. So a lot of times what we do is we think about, all right, why is any animal out there? Why is it rodent out there or whatever? Well, a lot of times it's feed on insects. So if we can get rid of whatever insect it's feeding on, then a lot of times the rodent will leave because it's going to go somewhere else to find food. So that's why like in lawns, for example, we talk about using metacloprid and then immediately watering it in. We talk about killing just bugs out in the field in general. We want these things gone. And sometimes the best way is just to get rid of the food source. But yeah, I get it. I mean, we used to use some poison around our farm, too, and uh, try to kill those things. It just 
seemed a little bit like a never-ending battle, but I, I guess yeah. uh, I don't think you're gonna, probably going to have much issue harming anything later on because the dose makes the yeah yeah the dose makes the poison. So you're right. If well, if, if you're I not, mean, how much could possibly go in to the plants right around it? First of all, and secondly, by the time you blend that off with all the other stuff there's going to be so little left that I would seriously doubt it's going to cause any problem. But I'm glad you're at least thinking about that because we always need to think about those kind of things. I mean, very often as farmers, we say, hey, I've got this problem. i got to solve it. Let me come up with the easiest, cheapest way to solve the problem. Maybe that's great. <laughs> but if we don't at least think about it and talk about it, sometimes we do things that could be harmful in the long run. Okay. Well, uh, what would be something common that you would see? I don't know if they're gophers or moles or whatever they are. They make those little mounds. But what what would you what do you commonly see them feeding on in the alfalfa field? What would be a common solution that you would use other than poison? Um, so grubs is one of the things, but I mean you have to think about any bug that would be below ground that 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 it, that could be fed on. So like in lawns, for example, when we're recommending imidacloprid, water it in right away, it's primarily to kill grubs. But there are sometimes yeah. some other bugs out there as well. So you might say, all right, well, alfalfa, if I, let's say I don't want to use imidacloprid, what am I going to do? Well, where do these worms come from in the first place? They're going to come from adults. And so if you kill the adults on a regular basis out in a whatever it is, alfalfa field or whatever kind of hay we're talking about here, if you kill the adults before they get the chance to lay eggs, now you have fewer worms that are going to be out there, and then you're in good shape. So this kind of goes back to one of the things Darren and I talk about all the time. Like we, So we've been agronomists for a really long time now, and so we've got lots of years of history where we we get calls every year, and guys say, oh, it's a disaster, and I got this bug problem out here, and I'm like, what? What? Why? Why? And almost always, when we talk to that farmer, he's almost never used insecticide on that field, and certainly not for years. So it's just like weeds. If you have one out there, no big deal. Well, all of a sudden, that becomes 20. And you go, yeah, no big deal. Pretty soon, it's 5,000. You go, ah, not the best. And then the next year, it's 50 million. And you go, whoa, this is a disaster. And it just all of a sudden popped up on me. No, it had been building over years. Insects do the exact same thing. If you don't keep them under control, pretty soon you're going to have an explosion when the weather is right, all the conditions are right. It's a disaster. So even though sometimes people are talking about, well, I want to minimize my cost and all that, that's great to discuss. But we have to look at the long-term implication of that. So well, on our farm, in our alfalfa fields, we're spraying insects on a fairly regular basis. We want to keep the population low and then by doing that, we're also hopefully going to have fewer of the rodents that are there to feed on those bugs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we spray twice a year, too, so I don't know what that rules out, but we spray after first and after second cutting and as well as sure. fertilizers and all that. But. Yeah, as we're talking okay. about this, we had a little feedback here from Lee, who's a, a longtime listener, and he said, hey, guys, I, I just a heads up, I used anhydrous, and my problem was gone. <laughs> he said, <Yes. laughs> wiped out any issue out there. 
So whether they didn't like the anhydrous and just walked across the road to the other field, that's that's how I'm going to think about it. Or uh... That, or it'll actually <laughs> kill a bunch of them, too. So, yes, we've talked about that as a solution. Like even this morning, we were answering one farmer's question about slugs, and you put copper sulfate out there or liquid 28%. I mean, stuff with excess salt, uh, copper, hmm. I mean, fertilizer. They just they don't like a lot of those things, so... Anything we can do, that's great for, for things that are going to be above ground. Well, below ground, I mean, anhydrous, whew, that's, that's nasty stuff. But, yeah, you throw that out there, and I agree. That, that generally solves rodent problems. Hmm. All right. Thank you, guys. You bet. Thanks you a bet. lot, Evan. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And thanks, uh, thanks, Lee, for the feedback there as well. Uh, Brian had a question from Glenn, and he said, you guys were talking about a fungicide that you spray early in wheat, and it was on this weekend's uh, Ag PhD show on RFD TV. Uh, what what was the name of the fungicide? And then uh, talk about that application just a little bit in terms of rate and so forth. Okay, so herb, at herbicide timing, a lot of times you can get by with what a lot of people will call a half rate. The product we were talking about most likely was Nexacore. That's from BSF. It's got three modes of action. We like the fact that it has three modes of action, helps us against resistance, helps us if we have some weird disease we weren't really counting on because basically we have a broader spectrum than by spraying one or two fungicides. In terms of the rate, then, if you look right on the label, there is a lower labeled rate for early applications. And it only makes sense because you think about how small the crop is, and I always compare this to humans, well, would you ask a child to take an adult dose of medicine? Of course you wouldn't. You'd say, hey, you got to take the kid dose, which is usually a half rate or a third of a rate. Same thing with your tiny little crop out there. Just go with a low rate. Since you're mixing it with the herbicide, you've saved yourself a trip. And I'll also say with wheat and a lot of these small grains, they don't have the disease tolerance that many corn and soybean varieties do. But the other factor is you think about that environment you've got. It's a tight, dense canopy. Your, the rows are close together. It's early in the spring when it grows, so it traps a lot of moisture. You have dew and humidity in that canopy. I mean, those are perfect conditions for diseases. So you want to do something early on in the season for, uh, I, I mean, just a whole variety of different disease issues you might have out there, and then also general plant health. Hey, thanks for the question. We really appreciate that. Thanks for checking out our show as well. That's, uh, it's interesting how many questions we get uh, usually the day after one of our shows airs. People say, hey, tell me a little bit more about this or explain that concept that you talked about. So don't ever be afraid if you're watching the show to send in a question and say, hey, can you guys elaborate on that just a little bit? We don't have that much time when we're especially on TV. We have a little bit more time here on radio to go through stuff in a little more detail. Thanks for listening to our program today. Be sure to join us again each weekday for more Ag PhD Radio.